when we stop running away, trying to escape and drugs and alcohol and Netflix and romance novels and you name it, um, to sort of not feel our pain when we actually then stop and turn and face that pain of our lives, whatever it may be, we imagine that we will be annihilated, but something really incredible happens in that moment and we experience relief from our suffering. Welcome to The Examined Life. I'm Kenny Primrose, a teacher and a writer based in the UK. This is a podcast which explores questions that can help us to live more wisely and more fully. Each episode, I speak to a leading thinker to ask them what question they think we should be asking ourselves. Conversations have ranged from talking about our innate spiritual nature to the need for ancestral wisdom and how we might better embrace our own finitude. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is an addiction psychiatrist at Stanford University. She's author of the book Dopamine Nation, and she's featured in the documentary The Social Dilemma, as well as many, many talks you can find online. In our conversation today, we explore the nature of addiction, why it's so pernicious and prevalent in our culture, and how we might learn to have a better relationship with both pain and pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Lemke, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast today. It's a joy to be able to speak to you. As you know, the, the theme of the podcast is to ask a leading thinker such as yourself what question we should be asking ourselves, drawing something from you know your, your, your wisdom, your insights, maybe your own personal life experience. And so I wonder if we could begin with that. What question do you think we should be uh, asking ourselves today in this cultural moment. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I'm a little nervous in the face of having to uh, pose this type of question, but I'm going to try. Uh, And I guess I would say, I think one of the most pressing questions for modern humans, because I think we all ask the same questions again and again uh, through the generations, but we have to reformulate them uh, for our times, and they different questions become more urgent at different times. As you can see, I'm prevaricating, trying not to get to the point where I actually have to pose the question. All right, but but I think you know, I think uh, uh, one of the most important questions is how is it uh, that we as modern humans should be orienting on pain and pleasure? So what what role do pain and pleasure? have in our lives today and and how can understanding how we process pain and pleasure uh, inform better choices? One important question, how do we orient towards pain and pleasure? You mentioned in your question quite rightly that there are, you know, there's old questions, but we need to ask them and explore them afresh in each new generation. And sometimes these questions are especially pertinent and important to, to, to a given moment. So I guess I'm asking, how, how do you think we're orientating towards pain and pleasure now? And in what ways is that different from generations that have come before us? Well, I think, as you point out, um, implicit in my question uh, is the idea that somehow the world is fundamentally different today than it has been uh, for uh, the most of human history. So let's talk about that first, because I think that's an important way to set the stage. And uh, importantly, you know, for most of human existence, we have lived in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. And our reflexive, uh, innate evolutionary wiring to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain is what has allowed us to survive over the millennia. But through uh, scientific and technological innovation in all aspects of life, we have really transformed the world uh, from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance. And in this world of uh, overwhelming abundance, we, we need to now orient differently on how we uh, approach uh, pleasure and pain. And namely, I believe that we need to embrace a new kind of asceticism um, and we need to actively invite the friction of pain and suffering into our lives uh, as a way to just generally be physiologically healthier, but also 
uh, to strive for the kind of contentment and serenity that I think all humans are wired to want and to strive for. Um, so I, I think that uh, this is a, a unique time uh, where we have to think differently about our orientation to pleasure and pain. And, and specifically, we have to go against our biology. Uh, we have to kind of uh, actively and intentionally oppose millions of years of evolution if we, if we want to survive, frankly. Would you be able to explain how pain and pleasure work in our brain? Like, what's the science behind that? And also, what's the, the evolutionary purpose of it? I use a simple metaphor to try to explain how our brains process pleasure and pain, and I'll, I'll share it here. Um, first of all, one of the exciting findings in neuroscience is that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of the balance. So if you imagine that in your brain, in your reward circuitry, there's like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And um, that represents how we process pleasure and pain. When we experience something pleasurable, it tips one way, pain, it tips the other. But like all living organisms, <clears throat> one of the driving realities is the desire or the need for all physiologic systems to return to homeostasis or a level balance. That means with any deviation from neutrality, either in the direction of pain or pleasure, our brains are going to work very hard to restore a level balance. And the way that our brains do that when it comes to pleasure and pain is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So to give an example, I really like chocolate. When I eat chocolate, I get the release of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in a specific circuit of our brain called the reward pathway. My balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened then my brain adapts to that increased dopamine by downregulating dopamine receptors and dopamine transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline. And I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the after effect, that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate. Now, if I wait... Uh, just a few seconds or minutes or hours, uh, those gremlins hop off, homeostasis is restored, and that feeling passes. But if I live in a world of overwhelming overabundance, where at the touch of a finger, I can have more of my drug, which again, is not the world that humans evolved in, um, then all of a sudden, I'm overwhelming my neurological system with uh, these high dopamine rewards. And in order to compensate for that, my brain essentially has to continue to downregulate dopamine transmission as a way to restore homeostasis. You might imagine that as the gremlins multiplying, uh, getting bigger and stronger. Eventually, I've got enough gremlins on the pain side of my balance to fill this whole room. They've got their uh, tents and barbecues in tow. Now they're camped out there. And essentially what that means is that I've changed my hedonic or my joy set point. Now I'm walking around with a pleasure-pain balance semi-permanently tilted to the side of pain. That means now I need more of my drug in larger quantities and more potent forms, not even to get high, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when I'm not using my drug of choice, um, I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, restlessness, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving or intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And how this resonates or is relevant on the meta level is that in the last 30 to 50 years, what we've seen is rising rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide all over the world, but especially in rich nations, which is really this paradox of plenty. Why is it that living in the richest countries in the world with the access to uh, you know, everything we could ever desire and then some, we are more miserable than ever. And I would argue it has to do with the mismatch between our ancient wiring and this modern ecosystem. We were not evolved for this world of plenty. We were evolved to be eternal strivers, never satisfied with what we have, always craving more. And this mismatch is leading to a kind of overwhelming uh, population despair, uh, essentially because from our first you know, potent cup of joe in the morning, uh, and checking our smartphones to our Netflix binge in the evening and everything in between, we're overwhelming our reward pathways and our brains are reeling in an effort to compensate. So when you talk about drugs, 
the obvious ones come to mind, heroin and cocaine and alcohol and so on. But you, you would like this word drug to, to cover a lot more than that, wouldn't you? Do you want to explain what you mean by a drug? Yes. Yeah, thank you uh, for um, you know emphasizing the need for clarification there. When I say drugs, I'm not just talking about alcohol and cannabis and cocaine and heroin. I'm talking about really um, anything that releases a lot of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway quickly and and in large amounts. And dopamine, you know, is a neurotransmitter. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in pleasure, reward, and motivation, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And the more dopamine that's released and the, and the quicker it's released, the more likely that substance or behavior is to be addictive. And what I'm arguing is that every aspect of human life has become drugified in some way, made uh, more, more reinforcing. It releases more dopamine, uh, more accessible. One of the biggest risk factors for addiction is simple access to our drug. If you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to use them and more likely to get addicted to them. Quantity. Can you imagine somebody who uh, had access to cocaine at the level that we have access to TikTok? That would be a very serious cocaine problem indeed, right? And then we, uh, and then we talk about uh, a potency. Um, you know, we have engineered ancient drugs like opioids to be, uh, you know, a uh, hundred times more potent than uh, opium from the poppy plant. That is to say fentanyl. Um, and we've also created drugs that didn't exist before, video games. Social media is, in essence, the drugification of human connection. Uh, we've got online pornography. You know, pornography and, and sex addiction probably always existed in some form, but it's the access, quantity, and potency made possible by the internet that completely changes uh, the risk vulnerability diathesis. So that now you've got people who were innately vulnerable to addiction who are absolutely reeling. Um, and then you've got a whole bunch of people who maybe aren't innately that vulnerable to the problem 200 years ago, but become vulnerable uh, in the modern ecosystem because the drugs are more potent. And again, because we now have access to more drugs, including again, drugs that didn't exist before. And I'll use myself as a case example. So I thought that I was immune to the problem of addiction. When I drink alcohol, I, I feel nothing but a headache. When I drink caffeine, it unfortunately does not wake me up. I've tried many different <laughs> times and versions. So I thought, well, wh whatever this, you know, addiction gene is, uh, I, I guess I don't have it. But then, you know, in my early 40s, I discovered romance novels for whatever reason. I'd never read them before. I'd always been a reader, but never happened on romance novels. And, and I was absolutely transported. And then I got a Kindle, which is part of the technology, making that drug more accessible. And I was off and running. I became a chain reader of, uh, well, my Twilight was my gateway drug. Then I you know, found other vampire romance novels. And then I, I went to the next level of like werewolf romance novels. And then you know, not long thereafter, uh, that wasn't enough. And I was reading like Frank Erotica. And I know I wasn't alone because there were a lot of other middle-aged women who were clearly hooked on Twilight and ended up, you know, at Fifty Shades of Grey, which is essentially uh, socially sanctioned pornography for women. But it was very interesting for me to not be able to observe the phenomenon as it was happening, which is exactly what my patients with addiction describe. It's an insidious process that we don't see happening as it's happening. That is to say the process of becoming addicted. Um, and it wasn't until I had a kind of a, a moment where I had to relate my reading habits to another human being that it became like real for me, which is of course, you know, the therapeutic function of going to see, uh, you know, a mental health professional and having to tell your story all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I, I really did that thing, um, which is not necessarily observable um, until we put it into words. Anyway, I went a little far afield of your question, but... No, no, I think you answered it uh, really well. So particularly this point about um, those those things that we think of as innocuous that are socially acceptable and sanctioned that there's also, as you say, like very little friction between you and, uh, and the, you know, your drug of choice, be it a book and a Kindle or whatever. And uh, have you noticed in your practice, in your clinical practice, like a, a, a rise in these kinds of problems that, that wouldn't 
like classically fit into your drug addiction um, categories, but but have you know misshapen lives because of the the habits they have they have developed. Yes. Uh, and I think this is really an important point. It's not just my own experience, but it's what I, I've observed uh, in the past 20 years as a psychiatrist. And just to clarify, you know, addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. So what we're talking about here is a kind of engagement that leads to real harm. And what I have seen in just really ever growing volume in the past um, 20 years, but especially in the past 10 years, is um, alarming numbers of uh, people coming in with severe pornography and sex addiction, uh, mostly occurring on the internet. Um, and we're talking devastating, life-threatening behaviors, people who are suicidal, uh, who, who can't do anything else, who have lost their families, lost their uh, incomes, or engaging in illegal activity. Uh, you know, young 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 people addicted to video games, um, people addicted to social media or just the internet in general, getting caught up, you know, in the spiral of being on their screens and then letting everything else go. Their their self care, their obligations to others, uh, you know, reaching a kind of uh, lethargy and nihilism, and again, uh, thoughts of suicide. So so these are really you know, really devastating uh, patterns of behavior, which are similar enough across different, uh, you know, demographics and ethnic groups that they really can't be ignored. You know, psychiatry is phenomenology. We, we base it on observed patterns of behavior. And this is a clear, clearly, you know, uh, an emerging problem. The other thing that I would add is that, um, you know, we have many patients who come to see us uh, who are coming in for depression and anxiety, insomnia and attention, who don't self-identify uh, addiction to these behaviors, especially uh, on the internet and screens and tech addiction, as um, causing or, or playing into their depression and anxiety. Um, but when we engage them in uh, um, asking them to abstain from their uh tech behavior for a period of time, usually on average about four weeks, what we find is that they initially feel more depressed and anxious, but by, by you know, the fourth week, they're feeling less depressed and anxious than they have in many years. And I, I say that because there's a big question of causality uh, versus, you know, is this correlation or causation? Uh, because there's lots of data now showing that people who spend more time on the internet are more likely to be depressed and anxious. Is it because they're depressed and anxious and they're going on the internet or is it because they're on the internet and depressed and anxious? And I, I would really argue that it's the causal direction is we're on the internet. We're, we're, you know, priming our reward pathways with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. Our brains are trying to compensate by downregulating. We go into this dopamine deficit state, which is akin to depression. And I argue that that's the causal direction because when we ask our patients to abstain for four weeks, the vast majority feel much, much better after having not been on their devices. So um, I think that's really important to think. As uh, someone who works in schools and as a parent, um, this feels like a very important and sharp issue and one that we really haven't figured out how to inform and instruct on yet. What you say reminds me slightly of uh, the Disney film Pinocchio, where, you know, he, he goes to this kind of hedonistic paradise island and it's a kind of hell in reality, <laughs> this place where, you know, pleasure is sought for its own sake. And there's a sense in which we, we live in that kind of world. Maybe Disney was very prescient in that film um i guess the question is if we're if we're wired for this and are like for the reward and the motivation of dopamine and our culture is kind of screaming at us to pursue it how do we deal with it what are you the, the the kind of the practical ways and solutions of um dealing with our own addictogenic behaviors so to, to me it's a, it's a three-part approach uh, the first is uh, first abstain um, and you know, that again, uh, is very difficult to do in the world that we live in now. Uh, these drugs literally chase us down with push notifications and, and other such technological advances. Um, so it's very hard to do that. Um, but, and one, and when we first do that, by definition, we will experience pain because there's the pain of withdrawal, but there's also the pain of having to tolerate 
uh, you know, our own negative emotions without distracting ourselves or escaping from them through these uh, titillating, uh, you know, behaviors and substances that are really everywhere we look. Um, so, and because, you know, the, the world is kind of chasing us down with, with these um, pleasures, we really need to engage in what I call self-binding strategies. This is where we create both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. And I talk about three general categories of self-binding, categorical, um, geographic, um, and chronological. So categorical is like, we might tell ourselves, and this may be true, okay, I can't play um, you know, League of Legends video game because it's just too addictive, but maybe it's okay for me to play, um, you know, some other video game or I can't play with tra- strangers, but maybe I can play with friends or food is often, you know, I can't eat processed food and sugar, but I can eat other foods. So we, we kind of create these categories. Um, you know, uh, chronological self-binding is where we do a kind of a use time as a way to uh, create, again, these boundaries between ourselves and these drugs, which is absolutely necessary in the world today. We might say, okay, I'm only going to use my drug on special occasions, or I'm only going to use, you know, two days a week for two hours a day, um, or I'm only going to use after I finish my exam, or I'm going to use at the end of this 30-day dopamine fast, which is the initial intervention. And then geographic is just uh, exactly what you would imagine, uh, not having the drug in the house, right? Or not having the app on our phones, or maybe not even having a phone. So like I personally, I own a smartphone, but it's uh, 99% of the time it's turned off in my backpack. Um, so, and I don't use it for texting and I don't give out the number. So that's a great barrier for me because I, I'm not, I'm essentially not on the phone. I'm not giving and I'm not receiving through the phone. Obviously I'm on the internet and, you know, um, and I'm interacting in that space, but I do it from this relatively less portable laptop. Um, so these are, you know, people have to find out what works for them. Uh, so it's, it's first abstain and then it's, uh, uh, use self-binding to maintain. Um, and then it, the third thing is, um, seek out pain. And from a neuroscience point of view, this makes a lot of sense. Um, that is to say, if you go back to this pleasure pain balance, um, those gremlins are essentially agnostic to whatever the initial stimulus is. So if we press, press on the pleasure side, they will, they will try to rebalance uh, by going on the pain side. But if we first intentionally press on the pain side, they will hop on the pleasure side as a way to restore homeostasis, and we will get our dopamine indirectly. And getting dopamine indirectly, for example, through exercise, ice-cold water immersion, um, focused concentration, cleaning out our closet, prayer, meditation, things that uh, are effortful, that are difficult to initiate, uh, that are even physically painful, um, as long as they're not too physically painful, these are all things that uh, w- will ultimately change our hedonic set point to the side of pleasure. And that's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for a healthy, resilient pleasure-pain balance that responds to pleasure and pain. It's not a matter of eliminating all pain, pain and pleasure in our lives. We wouldn't be human, but it's a matter, matter of not overdoing it in one direction or another. And because we live in this dopamine over, overloaded world, we have to, with intention, actually seek out pain or a kind of, you know, ascetic practices so that we stay in balance. So this is for, and again, again, these are, these are ideas that have been, you know, woven throughout uh, theologic and philosophical texts since, text since the beginning of time, but with a slight twist. So example, for example, you know, Buddha preached the middle way, right? Not asceticism, not indulgence, but somehow in the middle. But the problem is that you know, in the modern world, the middle way there's, is already tilted to the side of pleasure. So we, I think we have to, with intention, tilt ourselves to the side of pain in order to stay balanced and in the middle. I've got to say, uh, as someone who's always quite enjoyed cold water immersion, uh, your pages in Dopamine Nation on the science behind, you know, the dopamine kick you get from cold water immersion, they have, um, they've been a good spur for me to get into the sea on a kind of weekly basis. And I find a fantastic payoff. I find it interesting that in talking about moving towards pain, um, the, those things you mentioned, you know, cold water, exercise, prayer, meditation, they're very embodied things. And 
I think of that as in contrast to um, those addictions we've spoken about. So uh, pornography or video games, which are kind of vicariously embodied. Um, and do they you know, point to our need to be physical in a culture where we are starved of physicality? Yes, I agree with you. And I would even take it a little bit further. And I would say that we, first of all, we absolutely need and crave physical experiences. And in some ways, drugs actually do that for us. So, uh, you know, they, they give us a physical experience uh, that otherwise we are not getting in our lives. And that's part of their, their appeal. Um, I, I would argue that sex addiction, because it's almost always associated with orgasm, is also a physical experience, you know, in a vacuum of, uh, of physical experiences. And so again, very attractive, very appealing. And then the video games, you're right there, there we have our avatars, they, they run, they jump, they fly, they do all these physical things while we're just sitting there. Um, but the physicality of the video games is in large part their appeal because we are so disembodied. So there's a funny way in which these drugs sort of simulate uh, you know, an embodied experience, but actually are this real disconnection between our 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 lives, right, and our minds and our our goals and our values, and then this physical experience that that we're having. But I agree with you 100. percent We we are our bodies. I mean, you know, this idea that we have there's there's some a capacity to be a person not in your body. I, I really don't buy that. Like we we are our bodies. And um, our bodies are a huge part of our, you know, our subjective experience in the world and the way that we both ignore and mistreat our bodies because we can, because we have machines that do the work for us, because we have a supply chain that delivers everything we need. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're really suffering because of this, the disembodied nature of our lives. I've, um, I think I've heard your book. And and a few others described as science catching up with grandma. Uh, you know, this is uh, a lovely <laughs> phrase. Yeah. We know this stuff intuitively, but also from traditional wisdom. That's right. And and now now you're uncovering the the kind of science behind it. One one question I have really is about something that you you mention passingly and now and again in the book through um AA meetings, you know, higher powers and um right. at one point you you say, I believe in believing when you've urged somebody mm-hmm. to to get on their knees and pray when they're struggling with an addiction. Right. And I guess my question is, is maybe a slightly upstream of that. So it, over the last few decades, as screens have proliferated and these um you know friction has been removed from all these these ways we can find dopamine. Um at the same time we've lost uh, a kind of a meaning-making narrative, um, and would you would it be too much to um, suggest that perhaps as we've lost the sense of meaning and purpose, pleasure has has become the kind of the purpose of things? I mean, w- would you make that association at all? If that makes sense as a question. Well, those those two things definitely go uh, hand in hand. So, you know, I mean, I, th- I think it's fair to say that, again, for most of human existence, people derive their meaning through the notion of being part of something larger than themselves and some deistic, uh, you know, um, some kind of God, right? And some kind of purpose and meaning, some mystery, the great mystery. And of course, what's happened with the enlightenment and science and scientism, because science is at the end of the day, a religion in itself. Um, we, we are really these disembodied purposeless, uh, you know, things that are just sort of floating around on this rock in, in space and none, none of it means anything. And so I think, you know, with that comes a kind of a nihilism um, on the order of, well, if, if, if it, not, none of it means anything and, and there's no reason for my suffering, um, then who cares? Like, you know, then like, you know, Dionysian, mm-hmm. like, let's just, you know, let's just try to like, uh, you know, just live for today and feel pleasure. And uh, I think also a big part of that because many people don't really necessarily even reflect on in spiritual terms, especially in our increasingly 
secular world. There's just plain old capitalism, um, which is, you know, really the driving economic system, even in so-called communist countries today. And, um, and capitalism is sort of this incredible invention which optimizes human striving and innovation, but the ultimate end of which is to turn us all into addicts. Um, you know, the, the ultimate capitalist uh, member of society, not necessarily the dominant members, but, you know, the vast hordes uh, is, is the ultimate consumer, somebody who just um, feeds, you know, the machine by continuing to look for an optimal product and then ultimately becomes the product themselves, as we talk about often now with the way that these, uh, you know, digital products are really engineered to keep us hooked in. So I think it's, I think all of those things, all of those threads are related, like the, the secular nature of our lives, uh, the, the sort of, um, you know, underpinnings of capitalism, um, a kind of a nihilism, you know, that, that Nietzsche certainly predicted um, and that has really come to pass. And I say that because I, I see that in a lot of young people who come from loving families of privilege, who, who have access to the best education and uh, who have friends and, and, and you name it, they could really do almost anything. And yet there's this incredible uh, sort of lassitude. They can barely get out of bed in the morning. They, they see no reason uh, for, for doing anything. And so they, they lose themselves in, in video games or pornography or what have you. So have you found then you, um, you, you've got these fantastic, really practical tips on self-binding and, and so on, but you, have you find that you also have to, um, or you can't impose a, a, a spiritual narrative on people, but do they at the same time have to re-enchant the, the world so that it doesn't seem as nihilistic and, you know, that, that hedonism isn't the, um, isn't the guiding principle of life, like to move away from the utilitarian and towards something a bit more transcendent. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with that 100%. And that's been also very true in my own life. But it's really interesting in modern Western medicine, you know, the, the probably the, the four letter word is, is, is the three letter word of God. So we're not supposed to talk about God and spirituality. It's crazy, even in psychiatry, it's kind of a taboo subject. Um, but, but I, I do, I mean, I really, I, I encourage patients to talk about spirituality. I ask them, do they, you know, they have a spiritual practice, uh, do, you know, are they a person of faith? So I try to meet them where they are and explore those aspects of their lives with them and really encourage that. And the nice thing about being in the field of, of, you know, addiction medicine is that there's a long tradition of getting into recovery from addiction through spiritual transformation. So it is, uh, let's say, a, a, a sort of area of, of medicine where maybe spirituality talk is, is still okay. Um, but even then, I, you know, I would say most, uh, most physicians uh, are really afraid to go there. I, I had a colleague recently who said to me, oh, you know, I had a patient who come, came in, he was a lot of distress. And, you know, he asked me if maybe he should start going back to synagogue or seek out his rabbi. And she said, you know, and I'm Jewish. And I wanted to tell him, yes, you definitely should. But then I thought, no, I shouldn't do that because I'm a doctor. So a lot of these. It's, I mean, it's so interesting, yeah. isn't it? The, the, Lisa Miller, who I interviewed for the series, um, she her research suggests that you are, with the spiritual practice, 80% resilient against despair and suicide. And presumably addiction comes into that too um and yet despite the evidence base it's kind of taboo right. like in the uk absolutely yeah. you you know you could be struck off um because it, it seems proselytizing right. or whatever right. um so it's i mean it, it's interesting when we want to be like scientific right. you know, there, there is data here there is there's is something to be said yeah um, yeah yeah that's right. Uh, that's right. Um, and when, you know, you look at, for example, we have data showing that participation in 12-step groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, which is really founded on this idea of a spiritual transformation or higher power. Um, when people participate in that, they have good outcomes um, that are on par, par with, uh, let's say, seeing a, a psychologist and maybe even better than seeing a psychologist for long-term recovery. And when you look at the mechanisms um, specifically that are at play in those organizations, the spiritual transformation or the higher power is a you know, very important part of that. 
Uh, yeah, and yet I, I think it's you know again I would I would argue that this is the age of scientism and uh, science is our new religion. And if you can't quantify it and you can't they do a controlled trial or whatever, or even if there are controlled trials, people people are very resistant to these ideas. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be discussing why pain is not always a bad thing and what we can learn from leaning into it. So having discussed that we shouldn't be relentlessly pursuing pleasure, that way lies trouble. How should we be thinking of pain? Pain seems to be our body telling us that something isn't good and is to be avoided, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it? We have a whole narrative that pain is bad for you, um, that pain is not just painful in, in the moment, but kind of creates a kind of psychic scar for pain in the future. That is completely different from how uh, people used to think of pain, the role of pain in our lives. The people used to believe that, you know, it was uh, it, it not only were there spiritual gifts through suffering, but um, even um, surgeons, you know, in the mid 1800s when general anesthesia was first invented, uh, did not uh, did not want to use it because they believed that their patients needed to experience pain during surgery in order to heal faster um, and have a better recovery. And that sounds like barbaric uh, to uh, modern people. And yet fascinating uh, studies are now showing that um, when, when surgeons spare opioids during surgery, that is to say use fewer opioids or use no opioids, that patients heal faster from surgery. Um, so there's real scientific evidence to support, you know, that kind of sort of instinctual reaction that surgeons had to general anesthesia uh, in with opioids in the mid 1800s. So, um, so interesting to hear this. It reminds me of something I heard recently about trees that grew up in greenhouses or biodomes or whatever, and they, they get to a certain height and they tend to fall over. And the reason for this is apparently because they're never exposed to wind. And that kind of resistance that you get from wind allows you to develop the, the inner strength to support your own weight. Similarly, grass and oh, football pitches, apparently yeah. artificial wind is blown across it to help it develop the strength it needs to stand on its own. So it's a, a kind of, I, I think, a, a lovely metaphor for character development and our own need to embrace kind of pain and suffering in some. Towards the end of your book, Dopamine Nation, you urge the reader to embrace the life they've been given, to stop kind of running away from uh, pain and into these cul-de-sacs of pleasure, uh, which I, I think resonates with with this idea of, you know, developing inner strength or whatever. I wonder if you could um, unpack a bit more of what you mean by that challenge to embrace the life you've been given. The way that it comes to me visually that we... we, we most of us spend most of our lives literally like not literally like like figuratively mentally running away from the pain in our lives uh whatever it may be um and and that is a race we will never ever win uh at some point we will be too exhausted to keep going and the terror of that moment, uh, we can't even fathom it. And yet the, you know, there's this incredible paradox that when we stop running away, trying to escape and drugs and alcohol and Netflix and romance novels, and you name it, um, to sort of not feel our pain when we actually then stop and turn and face, face that pain of our lives, whatever it may be, we imagine that we will be annihilated, but something really incredible happens in that moment and we experience relief from our suffering. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. And I would say, you know, as a psychiatrist in the work that I do, um, it's really, it's really changed the way that I talk with patients. Um, because, you know, early in my career, 
um, because of where I was in my own life and, and still running from pain and also um, the way that I was taught to prescribe pills for people to make them uh, not feel pain. Um, and if I was going to be a good doctor, then, then I would get them out of their pain. And now I, I don't orient that way at all toward patients. Instead, um, I see their suffering as part of our communal suffering. I, I, I try to some extent to, to normalize it, um, to validate it, uh, to just kind of bear witness, and to also um, trust in their own ability um, to tolerate it and to endure and to keep going, which is a very different thing than saying, oh no, you're, you're depressed. Uh, here, let's give you some pills and take that away. And are you less depressed now? No. Okay. So here's some more pills. And, um, the, the other, the other way that this, this idea, this different way of orienting on pain has really affected my practice, which is at serious odds with the way that mental health care is delivered today is this, the way that people now orient on trauma. So there's this very, um, I would say like overwhelming movement now in mental health treatment that if we're unhappy or have dysfunction in our lives, that what we need to do is go back into our past and find that moment or two or 10 of how we were traumatized typically by other people who then be uh, then get identified as the perpetrators of our suffering and then once we've done that we will be completely illuminated as to why we're so unhappy and then that will solve our unhappiness and first of all i i don't know that that is true so that's a, the ancient freudian idea you know that uh like uh, that adult psychopathology can be uh, is caused by these early childhood experiences uh, that then often enter some unconscious realm and maybe we don't even remember them. And once we bring them to the surface, then we'll, we'll solve our psychological problems. And like, I mean, the longer I practice psychiatry, the less true I think that is. Um, I think that we're much more likely to be influenced by things like temperament, uh, the people that we surround ourselves with the, the ecosystem and the culture that we live in, the dominant narratives. But, but we, we nonetheless tell ourselves, and, and mental health care providers encourage this telling of a story uh, where you identify that moment of trauma. And, and what happens to those people often is it doesn't help them, you know, it doesn't move them into wellness or um, serenity or a better way of living. It instead makes them feel like the perpetual victims. They perseverate on their trauma. They often then disconnect from the, uh, you know, supposed perpetrator of the trauma. So, you know, this idea that, that like the difficult things in our lives make us weaker, um, is really, I think really problematic. That's really interesting. I've not heard much pushback against that before that it's so dominant, right. this find the pain in your childhood and, you bring it to the fore and then you, you're going to, yeah, deal with it that right. way. Um, it's it, w w w one last thing I'd like to ask you about is it, it seems like more than just a way of getting better, uh, but tr truth and deception have some place in, in this, th this whole story of how we're addicted, not least because what we do on screens is essentially secret, right? right. And we can get away with things and we live in atomized community. We're far less relational uh, than we were, I think, made to be. Um, but also you, you, you have this observation that truth, uh, how did you put it? Truth produces a, a sense of plenty or abundance as kind of spaciousness and uh deception or lies create scarcity mm -hmm. um i think i've i think i paraphrased you badly there no that would was you, good that was would good. you mind yeah so what was the what was the the gist of it yeah so i i think a, a good way to enter into this is to talk about the stanford marshmallow experiment so this was an experiment that was done many years ago where they put a, a child between the age of four and six in a room with nothing else in the room except for a table, a chair, a plate, and one marshmallow on the plate. And they said to the child, if you can wait 15 minutes here in this room by yourself, 
without eating the marshmallow, we will give you a second marshmallow and then you can have both of them. And it was a way to kind of measure the ability to, to delay gratification. What they found was that it highly correlated with age. The older the child, the more able they were to not eat the marshmallow in order to get a second one 15 minutes later. And then the the sort of the part of the marshmallow, Stanford marshmallow experiment that became very famous is that they then followed these children prospectively to show um, that, uh, you know, the kids who could wait longer at a given age compared to the kids at the same age who couldn't wait as long, uh, the kids who could wait longer went on to college, had better jobs, better test scores, more successful lives. But a little known um, variant to that experiment was where they divided the kids into two groups. And to one group, they said, now, the same thing. You wait 15 minutes, you'll get a second marshmallow. But you see this bell here? If you ring this bell anywhere in those 15 minutes, the researcher will come back. Um, so if, if for any reason you want to you know, ring the bell and have the researcher come back, they'll do that. And what they did is that in, in, in half of that cohort, when the child rang the bell, the researcher indeed came back. And in the other half, when the child rang the bell, the, the researcher did not come back. In other words, the researcher had lied to the child and said, I'll, I'll be there for you. Uh, but then they weren't. And what they found was that uh, in the cohort of children who were lied to, they were much more likely to eat that marshmallow and not be able to wait the full 15 minutes. And I, as as, as I interpret that, um, what, what I think that means is that when we live in a world where people tell the truth to each other, then we have trust in a, an unseen future. Um, and we feel we can rely on uh, the world being an orderly and predictable place where people will do what they said they would do. Uh, and when that happens, then we can delay gratification because we can trust in other people uh, and trust in the world. And that is a plenty mindset. Um, as opposed to a scarcity mindset where uh, people lie to us, uh, we can't rely on them. So I better take all I can get and eat that marshmallow right now because who knows if they didn't come back at the bell, they're probably not going to give me a second marshmallow even if I wait the full 15 minutes. And I think this has, to me, really interesting impl implications for um, for the world that we live in now and for a conceptualization of, of addiction because addiction really is the ultimate scarcity mindset, right? It's a, it's, you've got a lot of your drug. Uh, you, you wouldn't be able to get addicted without having access to quite a bit of it. And yet you have this continual feeling that there's never enough and you can't wait and you can't delay gratification. And there's lots of data and lots of studies showing that people who are addicted um, discount uh, future rewards and opt for immediate rewards, and and it's like it's a, it's like a very nice it makes a very nice indifference curve when you examine that. Um, but the other part of that, the sort of corollary to that, to me, that is fascinating, is that let's not start with the addiction piece that often also leads to lying. Let's just start with the lying, and we we aren't we now live in a world like a post truth world right where people can make up their entire identities and run for office on fake identities and then other people find out that it's fake and then still vote for them i mean it's just like it's like truth is sort of optional and i think that that very much contributes to this kind of addictive tendency uh, that we then all gather this sense of well the, the world is a is an unreliable place i can't trust uh, my politicians i can't trust other people so i'm just going to eat myself silly so that that's that's how i understand that it's a it's a super helpful explanation of that and uh particularly your interpretation of the the marshmallow experiments are very telling <laughs> um yeah very telling like i think of it the way i bring up my kids because yes. I, I can be late for things i'll say i'll be down in a minute mm -hmm. and i i think it's innocuous it's not actually um, that, that's right like in a rude event of trust right um, and so and i'm always very interested yeah. in how these ideas can practically influence our choices and so i hope that 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 uh, you know anecdote and and the explanation of it and encourage parents to be really truthful with their kids to admit their mistakes to to show up when they said they were going to show up it's all those little things the accumulation of those little things that absolutely hugely impact uh, how people you know perceive the world and the framework that they then apply 
uh, to their choices. So uh, I'm glad that you think about that vis-a-vis your children. I think that's really important. And I try not to lie to my children too. I'm often unsuccessful, um, but then I try to make amends. <laughs> I I wonder, Anna, whether it'd be okay if I did a, a brief review of where I think we've been and what we've been kind of Great. talking about. Great. Thank you. That'll be good. <laughs> I'm going to write it down. <laughs> Well, I think we've we've kind of touched on a number of different points and really important ones. But uh, here's maybe one of the big takeaways for me: that society uh, has an unhealthy relationship with pain and pleasure at the moment. It needs a reset, but that doesn't seem likely to happen. We're too enthralled to big tech, to consumerism, etc. Um, and so it's incumbent on us as individuals and people who have responsibility for others, children, etc., to step back and ask what our relationship is with pain and pleasure. So if we want to live mentally, physically, spiritually healthy lives, then we need to learn what it means to have a healthy relationship with these things, with pain and pleasure. And I think that for me is one of the big takeaways from Dopamine Nation and also from this conversation, thinking clearly about what it would look like to have a healthy relationship with pain and pleasure. Yes, that's that, that's wonderful. Right. Yes, and that that that's a wonderful way to phrase it. I wish now I had phrased that it that way in the beginning. What would it mean to have a healthy relationship with pain and pleasure? And again, because I'm ultimately a very practical person and I feel that life is a one grand experiment that we're always tinkering with the variables, the, to me, the recipe for a healthy relationship with pain and pleasure is really this three-step recipe. First, abstain, then use self-binding to maintain, then seek out pain. And because it rhymes, it will hopefully be easy to remember. (laughs) I love a good rhyme. Let me see if I can remember. First, abstain, then use self-binding to maintain, then seek out pain. Well, Anna, thank you so much for coming on Examined Life and dispensing your wisdom today. It's been such a pleasure well, likewise. speaking to you. Where might people find out a bit more about your work? Have you, have you got a website? Not, not really. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've, got a book. Yes. You've, got a, you've got a very yes. accessible book and you've got so many talks online yes. um, that you've kind of explaining these ideas, which, which, which I think all of us could do from from hearing. Well, so, thank you. It's um, been a, really a pleasure. And thank you for your thoughtful questions and your curious mind. And also thank you for teaching young people. I think that's a really important job. I very much appreciate that. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Examined Life with Dr. Anna Lemke. I'd urge you to pick up a book, Dopamine Nation. It's readable and packed with practical wisdom and insights. Um, I, I found it personally very helpful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Examined Life. Um, with thanks to uh, my younger brother, Colin, who's provided the music uh, and the editing. And uh, to you all for listening. Please do rate and review and share this with anyone you think might be interested in.